Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Best of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. This chapter comes from my personal time in the Lord a few weeks ago. I was struck by verse 3, and as we're starting a new sermon series next week, and we finished up 1 Timothy last week, I thought this would be a great standalone message just to dive in to Isaiah chapter 12. And I may have told you this story before. I don't remember all the details, but my parents can vouch for it. When I was about eight years old, we went to Glorieta, New Mexico, where our youth went this summer, where they, they've gone many times. And there's the big sanctuary. And I fell asleep during the preaching of the message, which, you know, eight-year-old boys tend to do. But there was a 200-voice choir that began singing the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And I immediately woke up, and this little Texas boy, and his Texas accent is an eight, you know, eight-year-old, I looked at my mama, and I said, Mama, are we in heaven? <laughs> and she said, No, Sean, you're not in heaven, but it's pretty close. So there's, there's something powerful about the Hallelujah Chorus. So much so that when the Hallelujah Chorus is played, what do people do? They, they stand up in honor of our Lord. You know, I grew up in a traditional Southern Baptist church, and we sang those old, those old hymns. And we still sing hymns today, and I remember a lot of them word for word. And some of my favorite hymns are, you know, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and in the burden of my heart rolled away. And then in the 90s, I was a worship leader at my, my father's church. He planted a church, and this was kind of the height of the, the beginning of the contemporary praise music. And so some of these songs are dated now, like in the 90s, but there's a song by Rich Mullins that was one of my favorite songs, Step by Step. I don't know if you guys remember that song, Step by Step. And so I love to sing, and it's great being here on the front row hearing you sing and fill this sanctuary with your voices. And, and we have some favorites that we sing now. I mean, you could probably list up some of the Emmanuel's greatest hits. You know, all I have is Christ, our great God, and Christ alone. And I've talked to some of the praise team members, and they've told me how there's times where they're looking out at the congregation as praise team leaders, and they can see your faces as we, as we worship. And sometimes there's exuberant raising of hands. Sometimes there's just Maybe tears flowing down your face as you're thinking about what you're singing. Maybe there's closing of the eyes. Maybe there's clapping. And, and dare I say, sometimes there's whistling. Doug knows what I mean when we think about whistling. And this raises a question. And maybe we're so, in, we're so used to it that we don't even think to ask it. Let's just ask the question. Why do we sing in church? Why didn't we just come here today and I just started preaching? Why, why do we sing? Why do we devote a portion of our worship to standing and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord? 
Well, let's go to Isaiah chapter 12, and let's see what the prophet Isaiah has to tell us. So let's read this together. It's a short passage in the book of Isaiah, six verses. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Here's this passage's main point or central idea. It's very simple. Redemption should always result in rejoicing. Redemption should always result in rejoicing. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, let's talk about redemption. Let's talk about rejoicing. Now, this is a standalone sermon today, and so I don't have time to give all the context to Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah, but let me just give you some insight into how this passage relates to the rest of the Bible. Much of the imagery of Isaiah 12 can be traced back to the book of Exodus, especially chapters 11 through 17. When the nation of Israel crosses the Red Sea, they sing the song of Moses, The Lord provides for them, and then water gushes out of the rock. So I want you to think Passover lamb, crossing of Red Sea, singing that they've been redeemed, and then water gushing out of a rock because God provided for their needs. Now, it begins by saying, you will say in that day, well, you have to ask a question, what's that day that he's talking about? It's a future day. You will say in that day. Well, what was that day to the original audience? You go back up to chapter 11, just one chapter ahead of that, and we find the answer to what in that day means. Look at verse 10, chapter 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant from the remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Patharos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse. Well, who's the root of Jesse? Who's, who's the descendant of King David? This is a direct prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah. In that day when Jesus emerges on the scene, in that day when Christ comes to redeem us, when the the son of David, the true king of Israel comes, in that day there will be great rejoicing. And so redemption should always result in rejoicing. And so from this passage, I want us to explore three truths about God's redemption. And that word redemption just means to redeem, to save And so here's first, 
God's redemption is accomplished by the removal of his wrath. God's redemption is accomplished by the removal of his wrath. This is called propitiation. This is a big word, propitiation, but we use big words around here to Manuel as long as we explain what they mean. Propitiation. Now notice what Isaiah says there in verse 1. I will say, give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Okay, here's a question. How is God's anger turned away? And the only answer from the Bible is propitiation. Now you say, what's propitiation? Well, propitiation means the turning away of God's anger. But what does it mean? This takes us back to Passover. The Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. You remember Passover. What were the instructions? The Lord told the Israelites, take a pure, spotless lamb. And you are to kill that lamb. And you're to put the blood of that lamb on the lintels and doorposts of your home. So that that night, when the angel of death, the writer of Hebrews calls him the destroyer, when the angel of death passes over your home, he will see the blood covering your home. And your house will be protected. You won't experience the wrath of God in the firstborn son being killed. If there is no blood covering your home, your firstborn son will die. And that's exactly what happened to the Egyptians. And so the Passover foreshadows how Jesus would come as the perfect spotless lamb to take the punishment we deserve. So what is propitiation? It's the turning aside of God's anger by means of Christ as our substitute. Jesus deflected. He absorbed that anger, that wrath, that justice so that it could be turned away from us. Jesus took it upon himself. The full weight of God's righteous judgment against our sin, Jesus took and turned it away from us by taking it upon himself. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now, a lot of churches don't talk about the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? J.I. Packer, I think, has the best definition. He says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. We must never confuse wrath with rage. What is rage? Rage is out of control. Rage is petty, vindictive, and sometimes senseless. It's not like God's up there having a bad hair day and he's throwing lightning bolts down because he's just out of control. That's rage. Wrath, on the other hand, is God's settled opposition to sin because he is holy and he must, as a holy God, punish sin. It's not a sudden flaring up of anger. It is a strong and settled opposition to sin. And so how did God pour out his anger against sin? He unleashed it on Jesus. 
the pure spotless lamb. The one who took God's wrath. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, remains on you. Here's the point. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, God's wrath is already on you right now. It needs to be removed. And the only way it's removed is through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and you're trusting in Jesus and what He did. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So here's the question. How do you personally escape the wrath of God? What do you have to do? Well, you do what the Israelites did. No, you don't go kill a lamb and put blood on your doorpost. But you do trust in Jesus Christ. And when you believe in Him, His blood covers your life. And on that final day, when God, you stand before God, you won't be standing under His judgment. You'll be standing with the blood of Christ covering you, and you will be forgiven for your sins. You can escape by Jesus. And so on that final day, what will God see when He, quote-unquote, passes over your life? Will he see the blood of Jesus, the lamb that was crucified, on the doorpost of your heart? Or will he see you still in your sins? And if you're still in your sins, that wrath will not be turned away. You will experience it for eternity. I've said this many times. There's two ways God's wrath is experienced. One, it's experienced by Jesus on the cross. Two, it's forever in hell. There's only two options. Either you will experience God's wrath forever in hell, or Jesus took that wrath. I say choose... Option number one, <laughs> trust in Jesus who took that punishment for you. Romans three twenty four through 25. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Again, that word propitiation, the turning aside of God's wrath. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this is love. The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so what does propitiation result in? If God's wrath has been removed by Jesus, what does it result in? Well, notice what Isaiah tells us. At the very end of verse 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. There's comfort. There's a release of guilt. You're no longer burdened by sin. You're forgiven. You experience the comfort that comes from being saved. There's, there's joy in the morning, as we read earlier in Psalm 30, 5-6. For this, his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. See, this security, this comfort that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven means that you relate to God as your Father, not as your judge. Now, look at verse 2. We see these wonderful expressions of who the Lord actually is. And you can kind of see how it's bracketed there. Look at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. And at the end of verse 2, He has become my salvation. So twice there, God is my salvation. Now just stop there for a moment. Was God under any obligation to save you? No. God didn't have to save you. God could have 
poured out his anger upon you. God could have let his anger be always against us, never turning it away. But he sent Jesus in our place so that his anger would be appeased by Christ and that we could have salvation. And notice the words that are used there. God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. The Lord God is my strength and my song. Do you know that this is what the Israelites sang word for word when they came out of the Red Sea? When they had been delivered by the blood of the Lamb and been delivered by the Red Sea, Exodus 15, they come out, and notice what Exodus 15, 2 says. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. He's become your strength. He's become your song. Psalm 118, verse 14, The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Now, verse 3 is what really stuck out to me when I was doing my personal reading. With joy, you will draw from the water, from the wells of salvation. Salvation or redemption is compared to a deep, deep well where you draw water. And it's very interesting. You don't get this in your English translations, but the word water is in plural in the Hebrew. You will draw from the waters of the wells. It, 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 it describes this overabundance of God's grace to you. The fullness and all sufficiency of God's grace. It reminds me of the song we sing, the deep Deep love of Jesus. In other words, this joy that you receive from Jesus never runs dry. It's a never-ending source of joy and, and satisfaction. It's a deep, deep well of refreshing to you. And Jesus said this in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. With joy... You will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Now, this imagery of God providing refreshing through water is all throughout the Bible. It's a metaphor. It's a picture of salvation. This welling up with joy, this welling up of salvation. In Exodus chapter 17, the Lord led the thirsty Israelites to the springs of Elam where they were able to have refreshing waters. Psalm 23 you're very familiar with it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently, to, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Come to the waters. If you're thirsty spiritually, come to Jesus for the drink. Go deep within the well of your salvation and receive this never-ending supply of joy and refreshing that comes from Lord Jesus. And even Jesus said this in John 7, 37-38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me 
and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the ultimate source of living water. The deep, deep love of Jesus, the deep, deep joy of Jesus, the well of your salvation. In the book of Revelation, heaven is often pictured as a place of refreshing for people who will have their eternal thirst quenched in the presence of Jesus. Revelation 7, 16 through 17. This is talking about heaven. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb, that's Jesus, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a wonderful imagery. In heaven, Jesus as our shepherd is going to lead us to springs of living water. And it will be the best water we've ever tasted. And it will never run dry. And Jesus will be our eternal shepherd. At the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says this, Revelation 21, 6, He said to me, It is done. This is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And then in the very end of the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who's thirsty come. But the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It's amazing that the very, the very end of the Bible, it's this image of drinking deeply from the well of your salvation eternally with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Redemption should result in rejoicing. When you think about propitiation, God's wrath has been turned away by Jesus It brings comfort, it brings forgiveness, it brings joy, it brings refreshing. Psalm 107 verse 35 says this, He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. Think about your life before salvation. You were a spiritually desert wasteland. You were a parched desert wasteland. And what has Jesus done when He's come to save you? He's turned you into springs of living water. So the first truth we see from this passage of Scripture is that redemption is accomplished by the removal of wrath, propitiation. Let's look at the second truth. God's redemption is announced by the sharing of His salvation. It's announced. This is called proclamation or evangelism. Or testimony sharing, whatever you want to say. This great salvation must be announced. It must be shared. It must be boldly testified to. Look at verse 4. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people. Proclaim that His name is exalted. You've got those two words there, make known and proclaim. Why do we need to make known and proclaim the great deeds of the Lord? Why do we need to make known and proclaim Jesus? It's it's because people are living in darkness. People don't know about their sin. They don't know that God's wrath has been turned away by Jesus. People don't know they can have this well of salvation through the joy of Christ. They don't know that. And that word proclaim, it's very interesting. When you go back and study the Hebrew word, that word proclaim means you need to remember this in a way that leads you to repentance. 
It's remembering what God has done in a way that leads you to repent. It leads you to trust in Christ. It means more than just talking about God. It means announcing, declaring, sharing His glory so that people will repent and believe in Jesus. We proclaim God's salvation. We tell others about Jesus. Sometimes I think we make evangelism harder than it needs to be. Here's the best definition. You want to know the best definition of evangelism? Here it is. Evangelism is simply this. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Or one thirsty person telling another thirsty person where the water fountain is. Evangelism is basically this. I've been saved by grace, and it's so amazing, I can't help but tell you where to come. Come, let me, let me tell you who saved me. And you share the gospel of Christ. You tell others. You see, if you've been showered with grace, the natural outflow of your life is you're going to want to tell others. You're going to want to proclaim it. You're going to want to make it known. If Christ means that much to you, if you've drunk deeply from the wells of salvation, if the joy of the Lord is your strength, you can't keep it in. You've got to share it. You've got to tell others about it. It's the natural outflow that you must tell and proclaim this to others. So, we've seen two truths. God's redemption is accomplished by the removal of His wrath. That's propitiation. This redemption needs to be announced to others. This is called proclamation. But there's a third truth. God's redemption is adored by the singing of of his sovereignty. This is called adoration. Verses 5 and 6. Notice the verbs. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known. There it is again. Make it known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great. God is great. Do we often talk about the greatness of our God? God is great because He's redeemed us. God is great because He's turned His anger away from us. God is great because He's given us the joy of salvation. God is great and greatly to be praised. Psalm 96.4 For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and in His greatness is unsearchable. Okay. Where do we often sing about His greatness? In the shower, right? When you're driving down the street, right? That's okay. But where is the greatest expression of where we should sing about His greatness? In corporate worship, in, in public worship, in gathered worship where we come together, where we can hear each other's voices singing. You see, when we think about God's wrath being removed by Jesus dying on the cross, propitiation, when we think about the, the well of our salvation and the joy of the Lord is of our strength, and when we think about what we need to do to proclaim His greatness, we do this together in worship when we sing. So here's something that's going to happen a little bit differently this morning. You may think the sermon's come to an abrupt end. No, we're going to do the Lord's Supper now, and then I'm going to finish my sermon, and then we're going to sing. Okay, so one of the greatest ways that we can celebrate redemption and rejoice in redemption is by observing the Lord's Supper.
So at this time, I would ask those that are leading in our Lord's Supper to come forward. Still keep your Bible open to Isaiah 12. Back to Isaiah 12. I want to just show you something stylistically that Isaiah does that you don't get in your English translations. In verse 1, you will say in that day, you is in masculine, the masculine, you, masculine. In verse 6, where it says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is feminine. Talking about the nation of Israel as, as personified as the, the city of Zion. So what Isaiah is doing is he's starting with masculine, he's ending with feminine. It's a poetic and symbolic way of saying this. All of God's people, both men and women, rejoice together with one unified voice. With one unified voice. Paul says in Romans 15, 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One voice. So when we sing together, your different voices, some higher, some lower, some better than others, it's all right. But when we come together as God's family, we're one unified voice worshiping God together. And what are we doing when we're singing? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So how do we teach and admonish and encourage one another? We do that by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when we sing on a Sunday morning, we're actually encouraging and teaching and training one another. Especially adults, we're doing that to children. We're encouraging one another. And so redemption should always lead to rejoicing. This rejoicing should never be private. Now, it can be personal, but never private. It needs to be sung. It needs to be shared. It needs to be proclaimed. And where do we do that? In worship together. Nehemiah 8.10, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So what I want us to do here, look at the last words. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let me ask you to stand, please. You can tell I'm a little excited about this. Let us sing for joy. Let us rejoice in His great redemption. Let us make known His greatness. Let us proclaim His glory. Let us sing praises to the Lord, for He is great and greatly to be praised. Behold our God seated on the throne. Come, let us adore Him. Behold our God, nothing compares to him we're going to end our service by singing a few songs together and sing it from your heart this morning